This is Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? Hey, welcome to Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? My name is Molly Stillman, and this is a podcast where I get to sit down each week with a different guest and have raw, funny, often brutally honest conversations about the things that matter most faith, business, life, and everything in between, where we each learn how to be good stewards of the things we've been entrusted with, even our stories, and how we can use those things to serve others and leave our families, our friendships, and our communities a little better than we found them. I want to create a space where people are unafraid to be themselves and unafraid to ask the questions the rest of us are thinking. My goal is to make you laugh, cry, and laugh till you cry. My guest this week is the hilarious and amazing Elizabeth Passarella. She's the author of It Was an Ugly Couch Anyway and Good Apple, which was named one of the best books of 2021 by Real Simple Magazine. Her articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Vogue, Parents, Martha Stewart Weddings, Real Simple, and Southern Living. She's originally from Memphis, Tennessee, but now lives in Manhattan with her husband and three kids. I have wanted to have Elizabeth on the show for so long for many reasons, because one, I love her books, but two, she and I actually are what I like to kind of call editor twins. So we both have the same editor for our books and or her books, my single book. I just admire her work. She is a incredibly gifted writer and she is somebody who I have really just looked up to in her writing. And so I was so excited to have her on the show. She's so funny. She's witty. She is smart. And you're just going to love this conversation. So without further ado, on to my chat with Elizabeth. This is a very exciting day on the podcast because I have the incredible Elizabeth Passarella on the show. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Molly. I'm so glad to be here. We have a special connection. We are just meeting for the first time. So for the listeners, like this isn't, I don't, Elizabeth and I don't go way back. We are new friends as of about six minutes ago, Um, but we are we're twin, we're editor twins. So we have the same book editor. And I've heard so much about Elizabeth. And um, I've, I have read, uh, I read Good Apple, I just got my copy of her new book, it was Ugly Couch. Anyway, it was an ugly couch. Anyway, I'm use correct grammar. Um, And I'm just so uh, grateful to finally get to meet you. And I just feel like, you know, when you know, the same people, and you have a relationship with similar people, it just it's like that it's the social crud just you know <laughs> yes listen I just hope all those people that we know in common had nice things to say about me they I did. have no idea they so did. yes I assume the fact that you called means that all of our mutual friends have yeah. positive things yes. to say about me yes. to you um yes it is so nice to meet you through these tiny little zoom screens if I could reach through there and hug you I would yes um but yeah I mean and I have a big connection to North Carolina I went to went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill Go and Heels. you live in Durham which yeah. is not great it's no, not great. You should okay. be, you know, slightly, slightly in a different zone in Chapel Hill, but that's okay. Yeah. It's okay. It's we can right. still be friends. I know. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're tar- big Tar Heel fans in this house. My husband went to Carolina. And so uh, what did you, I remember I read this in Good Apple, but uh, you majored, majored in journalism? Journalism. Because yep, I my, was a husband, journalism major. my husband majored in journalism at Carolina. So I'm just saying. Like, okay. Like, well, 
I'm assuming that your husband is 25 years younger than yeah. I am because <laughs> I'm, I'm old, but there's a possibility. Listen, I, there's always a possibility that, um, we were there at the same time and just did not know each other, but I'm going to guess not yeah. by looking at your dewy, dewy skin and all uh, that collagen well, you he's, have. He's going to be 40. I'm going to guess. So he'll be, he's yeah. probably, we were right. not there at the same time. I'll just say that. Yeah. <laughs> but probably not I'm that just far. A tiny bit older. Probably, tiny. You probably had tiny some bit. of the same, uh, same uh we probably did have some of the same professors that is true i love it okay well uh let's do what all my guests do and then that's have you give us the elizabeth 101 so who you are other than the fact that you went to carolina um what you do and how you got to where you are today sure i would love to so i am a writer i live in manhattan i live in new york city i have been here since 1999 So it's been almost 24 years that I've lived in the city. and But I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and so I'm a Southerner at heart. I moved to New York after college and uh, to work for magazines and newspapers. And that is what I did for about, uh, I mean, I'm still doing it to some extent, but um, that is what I did for about 20 years. I went to Chapel Hill as a journalism major, moved to New York, immediately fell in love with the city and just kind of knew in a very deep and spiritual way that this is where I was supposed to live and probably where I was supposed to always live. It just took me a while to get there. And I ended up marrying uh, my husband. We met briefly after we both graduated from college. We met in New York and he is from New York City. He grew up in the city. So I married a New Yorker and I worked for magazines for years. So I worked for a newspaper at first. I've worked for InStyle and Vogue and Real Simple. And I freelanced for many, many magazines over the years. And just, I guess, about three or four years ago, I decided to start writing books at the encouragement of my agent, who was also a magazine editor. And Good Apple came out in January of 2021. And then my next book, It Was an Ugly Couch Anyway, just came out in May. They are both humorous essay collections, kind of about my life. I write about parenting and marriage and friendship and jobs. I write a little bit about my faith also. I write a little bit about politics in the first book. Not as much politics in the second book, if anybody's worried. But um, that is what I do. And then I have three kids. So they are 13. By the time this podcast comes out, I believe 13, 11, and 5. So I have a girl and then two younger boys. It is very busy. And my kids are still in school. I I hope all the Southern listeners who are listening, whose children have been out of school now for however many weeks, (laughs) will just sympathize with the fact that in the Northeast, our children do not get out of school until the end of June. That is the deal. Everyone always thinks it's insane. But yeah, so that that is me. Yeah, well, I, um, I loved your first book, Good Apple. And I just thought your writing style was so fun. And I, it's, it's rare to find books that make me laugh out loud. And I, there were many times that I laughed out loud. Um, so I just love your writing style. Um, okay, so I want to hear, you know, obviously, I love one, you title your books very well. <laughs> um, I'm a little bit of a title. Well, let me tell you, that is the magazine. That's the yes. magazine editor, I yes. feel like in me, you know, people have said your chapter, your chapter titles are so funny, your titles are so funny. When you have spent 25 years writing headlines and then decks and yeah. everything has to be a pun and everything has to be catchy and, and SEO driven and all those wonderful yeah. things. You get really good at writing little pithy chapter titles. Yeah. Well, they're fantastic. And I loved it so much. So I obviously you you talk a lot about uh, in your first book about growing up in the South and then and then moving to New York and, and what that was kind of like. Um, what was the thing that led you to want to move to New York right out of college? Well, at first, I really didn't want to move to New York, which is funny. When I was applying to colleges, my dad, who was born and, and raised in Memphis, he was a native Memphian, 
when he was going to college, he went to the University of Michigan and he, he went sight unseen. Of course, this was also in the mid 1950s. And so he was a real big proponent of kind of reaching, going someplace different, going to a different part of the country. He encouraged me to apply to colleges in the Northeast. And I flat out pretty much refused. I didn't want to move north. I really loved the South. I wanted to go to a big Southern state school. And I did. But um, I always had it in my head that I didn't think I wanted to move to New York. And then when I was in college, maybe once in high school, my dad had a cousin, still has a cousin. He is still alive. Uh, a first cousin that is really like a brother to my dad who has lived in New York for most of his adult life. And we would come, we came up to visit him. I think once in high school, we came a couple times when I was in college. And I just slowly realized what a really, I don't know, special, high energy, exciting, fun place New York was. And so by the time I got through college, and, and again, I was a journalism major. So I really wanted to work in magazines or work for a newspaper. And there just weren't that many places to go if you didn't want to work for a regional newspaper, which I think I would have done eventually. But, um, but I just decided, let's try magazines. And at that time, there were very few places you could go. Um, there was Southern Progress Corporation, which was part of Time Inc. at the time. It was based in Birmingham. They owned Southern Living, uh, Coastal Living, Cottage Living was part of that group for a while. So there was Birmingham, and I had interned at Southern Living, so I had worked there during college. And then there was New York. And that was really it. Now there's magazines in a few other places. Obviously, the world has changed. The publishing industry has changed. But at the time, that was sort of it. And so I came up to New York a couple of times and then really just decided, oh, I've been missing out, I think. And then I got an internship at Newsday, which is the, the local newspaper on Long Island. And I originally turned it down. I said, no, I want to work for a magazine. I want to live in Manhattan. And the man who was in charge of coming to campus to recruit for this internship said, you're really dumb to turn this down. In not, in not so many words. He said it nicer to me. But he just said, you shouldn't turn this down. It's a great opportunity. You will learn so much. And it's a really, they only take two interns and you should do it. And he was right. And I did learn so much about how to write fast, how to report, how to go into situations that were um, really just, you felt completely out of your depth and find the right person to interview and put a story together really quickly. It was great. So once I got to New York, I don't think I knew exactly then, oh, this is where I'm going to live forever. I thought maybe like most people who moved to New York, you'd be there for a little while and you'd go home. But I say this all the time. It was a, a like cosmic spiritual transformation mm. in me. I just knew in my bones that this was home. And that I think even if I hadn't met my husband and gotten married and, and stayed, I still think I would be here. And there have definitely been times where I think he would be more willing to move out of New York City than I would have been. Mm. And he's from here and his family is here. So, you know, I, I, I don't, it's not any part of my own striving or success story, or I've really dug in my heels because it's just what I want, or I wanted to prove something to other people. It is truly, truly, I felt a calling. I just felt a spiritual calling that this is where I was supposed to be and that this was home. And yeah. there was some reason I was supposed to stay and put down roots and raise my family here. So there are times where other people have felt that calling to go elsewhere and they've left New York. Families all the time leave New York. It's a very transient city. We have like lots of friends who have moved away. And every time people will say to me, oh, do you ever feel that way? And I say, no, I don't. Things can get so hard. The pandemic was awful. And I've just never felt the pull to leave. I'm not saying it wouldn't come. Maybe it will come. But yeah, I've just, I, and I just think that's a mercy. That's God's mercy. Yeah. That's just a mercy that I have never felt conflicted about it. So yeah, once I got here, it was very, very clear that I was supposed to stay. Oh, I love that. I love that perspective. So I, I just want to, I, 
I want to share this because uh, this is one of the the things that some people know about me, and I've I've certainly if if somebody is listening that has listened to the podcast a long time will know this story, but I mean I grew up uh, not in the church. I grew up in Virginia, and but I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. That was my life dream. That was all I ever wanted to do, and uh, so I did sketch and improvisational comedy for years and years and years and years, and and then when I was in college. Um, I went to college in Virginia, but I would on summer breaks, on winter breaks, my I have a cousin, uh, first cousin who lives in lives in New York and she worked uh, for NBC for years and MSNBC. And like she worked at like her office is in 30 Rock. And so I would go and I would stay with her and I would take, uh, you know, comedy classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater and the People's Improv Theater and Second City Training Center in New York. And and I was just like convinced that that was where I was supposed to be. And so New York was like where I was going to end up and I was going to move to New York and I was going to, I mean, I knew that city like the back of my hand. I mean, I'd stayed, like I said, I'd stay with my cousin, but then I also went up with some friends one time and I stayed for, I want to say it was like 14 days, three weeks, something like that. An $8 a night hostel on oh. 110th and Broadway. And I am, when I say that that was just a whole. What did you get for $8? It was a bed. It was a bed um, inside of a, in, it was like a, like an iron bunk bed, but it was like eight bunk beds in a room um, in this $8 a night hostel. And when I look back and I think like, how did I not like get murdered or just, it was, yeah, it was, and there was like a shared bathroom, but yeah, I mean, I was a broke. If like, only, if only I had known, yeah. if only I had known, if only we had known each other then, yeah. Molly, I live on 104th street. Oh my so god, We are so, I was so close. Yeah. I don't know if, if that, only we had known each other. If only God had spoken a little louder to me <laughs> and said, there is a young woman <laughs> sleeping in a murder hostel, yeah. <laughs> six blocks away. Actually, it's not a murder hostel. See, I'm perpetuating stereotypes no, about it, New York City. Really, you were very mm, safe on 110th and Broadway. Yeah. But there is a woman sleeping in an eight-person hostel, yeah. $8 a night, who needs you. Yeah. You could have come into my warm, tiny apartment with my probably that. baby children. I, I don't know when, what year this was. Oh, my gosh. So this and I could, have been, have t- I could have given you shelter. I oh, want to say heavens. staying in that hostel was probably summer of 2007. So it was after I graduated. Um, but was it was, it. oh, my gosh. It was such, yeah, it was such an experience. Um, but you know, this was really at the, at a time when the recession was starting to hit and I was just afraid. And and in a lot of ways I was afraid. And to me, that is God's mercy and God's grace because I didn't move because I was afraid because I couldn't get a job. I'd applied for a million jobs in New York city. And I was like, I can't move to New York with no job. Like I'm never going to be, you know, afford to live there. And long story short, like God keeping me out of moving to New York, kept me in Virginia, but then moved me to North Carolina. And that's what, that's where I met my husband. And that's how I got saved. And like, that's how, and now I live on a farm in the middle of Orange County, North Carolina. And it's like the opposite of living in New York, um, which is just so funny, but I just, I wouldn't change it for the world. I do miss doing improv and sketch comedy. I do. Um, and I, there is a little dream in the back of my head that one day I will get to host SNL. I have no idea how that will happen, but I'm like, maybe I'll be like Betty White and I'll host SNL at like 92 years old. And it'd be amazing. Um, (laughs) 
but who well, Molly, knows? I have never been to SNL. My husband got to go for his 16th birthday. He tells the story a lot. His 16th birthday, I guess, a friend of his parents or a friend from school somehow got tickets and he was able to go. And he still talks about it, how great it was. Yes. I've never been able to go. So if you host, I will get, if I'm not dead, if yeah. you're Betty White's age, I may be dead. No. But if I'm not dead, I will get to come yes. when you host. You know, here's the thing. Here's what I tell everybody about New York. Even friends of ours who live here for a really long time, a long season, and then they move away and they're sad and torn up and conflicted. And I say, here's the thing. It's not going anywhere. Right. New York's not going anywhere. Life is long. Right. Children do grow. I hear they leave for college. I am <laughs> actively anticipating that day. I hear it happens. But, you know, the the city doesn't go anywhere. And it, it, it listen, 2007 was also a really tough time to try to get a job. Oh, when wow. I graduated from college... When I graduated from college, uh, investment banks were giving jobs to like poetry majors. That's kind of the, that's the environment I graduated into. <laughs> it was extremely easy to get a job yeah. anywhere. I had friends who were art history majors. And next thing you know, they were management consultants at places. So yeah. it was really, it, you, you hit it at a bad time. Yeah. You did not want to live in an $8 a night hostel. No. And it's not going anywhere. The yeah. dream doesn't die. Yeah. The city never is, is, is still here. And you can still come back. I love it. I will say, okay, this, um, this is the last thing I'm gonna say, and then we'll move on. But I, um, so I did get to go to SNL. Um, it was the <gasps> January 7th, 2007 episode. I want to say that was the date. And Jake Gyllenhaal was the host. And I, this is what you do when you're young and stupid is I camped out for tickets. And I want to clarify that I camped out in January in New York Ooh. City. So yes, I slept on a sidewalk outside of 30 Rock in January of 2007. Wow. I still to this day I wonder if that's even a possibility. Can I don't you know still if they do it anymore. For tickets? I I don't I'm know. old and stupid. I'll do that. You you I I mean I don't know if it's still a thing. It was in 2007. It was the, basically if you wow. didn't get tickets in the lottery, you could camp out for standby tickets. And so I, I, I did it. And I still to this day, what was that, 15 years ago or whatever, I still remember how cold I was. Like it was just a cold <laughs> that I that is embedded into every fiber of my being. I think I'm still cold from it. I, it was January's so rough. January is rough. Cold. It was, there was ice everywhere. And I just, I had not packed with that in mind. So I just was like layering on random pajamas and it just, oh my gosh, it was so cold, but mm -hmm. it was the experience of a lifetime. I will never forget it. I actually got to go to the dress rehearsal, which is longer yeah. than the live show, but runs like the live show. And it was just the coolest experience. That was the episode where if anybody's a big SNL fan, and then like I said, we will move on. It was when Maya Rudolph and Amy Poehler did the, um, it was the, the sketch where they were like the Bronx moms and they were with like, oh yeah, sweater weather, sweater weather. Like it was that sweater weather, like those characters with Jake Gyllenhaal. And like, I will just, I will never forget it. It was the funnest experience of my life. Um, and it just, it, oh, that's so good. I, like, I love this so much. It was so cool. Um, and I still, to this day, I, I think about it. So <laughs> 
Well, and you know, I, one last thing that we really can yes. move on. Yes, it's great. But um, I also think too, everyone, you know, you people come to New York and they have experiences like that, which is amazing yeah. and so magical and once in a lifetime. But when you live here, Molly, just yeah. so you know, your life probably isn't that much different than living on the farm. My children are still my children. Yeah. We are still grocery schlepping and we are still mopping floors and yep. cleaning toilets and we don't go to SNL. And no. so, yeah. you know, I mean, I think that people come to New York like, this is so amazing. And I'm like, yes, but that's not your daily life up here. Your daily oh, yeah. life is your daily life, no matter where you live. So, yeah. um, that's anyway, it, it's, you're, you're living, you're living a great life where you are too. Okay. So let's transition a little bit because I want to kind of talk about how you got into book writing and why you decided to kind of, and I know you said that, um, your agent really uh, encouraged you to get into book writing. But where did the ideas for these books kind of birth from? Especially, I always think about because I'm a writer by nature too, but I, I mean, and I realize I'm kind of in the fog of the current book writing, but I'm like, how would I ever do this more than once? Like, how do, how do you like have more words? <laughs> um, so where did the idea for the books come from? And, and, and how did all of that kind of transpire? Well, my mother did say to me, um, so I just finished a little kind of mini book tour. I went two different weeks kind of in some cities around the South and to promoting this latest book. And my mom went with me on every stop. She traveled with me and went to every stop on the book tour, which was so fun. And also at the end of it, she started telling people, well, I think she should be done now. I think she said everything she needs to say about her life. So um, according to my mother, there is nothing left to say, Molly. I'm done. I've said it all. There will be no more books. She would love for there to be no more books. She's tired of me writing about her. But um, so Good Apple came. I, I, I think every writer, especially if you are, you know, you do for, do you do it for a living? You're a professional writer. I think everybody in the back of their minds always thinks, oh, I'd like to write a book. I think that's always kind of the, the sort of goal. If this is what you do, that feels like the, the ultimate, you know, accomplishment in some way for some reason or another. So I had been in magazines, like I said, for many, many, many years. And, you know, magazines have changed. There aren't as many out there anymore. There isn't quite as much work anymore. And, but I had never really had time to write a book, even though, even if I'd wanted to, I never really had the time to write a book. I had young kids. I was working part-time at magazines. I would go in and kind of edit special issues. I would go in and cover maternity leaves. I'd go in part-time to Real Simple for years. I went in three days a week at Real Simple and just top edited some sections for them. And it was such a great gig because I could, I worked part-time, I parented part-time, <laughs> no time. I wish I could parent part-time, but um, so I, you know, I parented, I worked, I had this, you know, great setup, but n- no real margin for saying, Hey, uh, financially, it's going to be great for me to just take off six months and write a book proposal. That was not in the cards for us. So I never had that opportunity until um, I, my sort of my last child was born. He he's a little bit of a, a late caboose. He's about six years younger than my middle kid, and so I was older. My husband was older. His job was different, and than it had been in years past. And I had a little bit more um, flexibility in financial terms and in my work terms to be able to say, okay, I can take kind of a pause with some of my magazine work and maybe think about writing a book. And around that same time. My um, agent, who was not my agent yet, but she was the editor-in-chief of Real Simple for many, many years, kind of during its heyday. She was sort of the star of, of the Real Simple world for, wow. in the Real Simple universe for many years. And so she knew my writing. I'd written for her a lot. 
she reached out to me and said, hey, I, she had left Real Simple years before. She had taken a little hiatus and come back um, in a new career as a literary agent. And so she reached out to me and just said, would you be interested in writing a book? I'm looking for writers. You know, I'm starting new and want a roster of people. And she knew my writing and liked my writing and thought I had a book in me. And so we really fleshed out the proposal for Good Apple almost together. I had ideas about what I wanted to write, but I said, these are the things I'm passionate about. I am not really a fiction writer. I'm definitely a nonfiction writer. I love writing humor. I'm passionate about New York City. I'm passionate about raising kids here and having a family in New York, which I think um, feels sometimes very strange and peculiar and scary to some people. So I feel like I could write about that in a way that would be interesting. And I said, blah, 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 all about New York. And she said, that's great, Elizabeth. That's great. I would love for you to write about New York. She said, but we need to be able to appeal to a wide audience. We need to be able to appeal to, you know, like all those evangelical Christians in the middle of the country. And I said, oh, I think I can do that. I think I could do that. And so, you know, she knew me well. She didn't really know that much about my background. I mean, I did grow up in the South. I grew up in an enormous evangelical church in Memphis. And so when she got, you know, her head around that aspect, she said, well, you need to write about that. You need to write about your faith. You need to write about this fish out of water aspect of being in New York City, but being a Christian, uh, being a Southerner, but being in New York, being a person who goes back to the South, but is uh, love, loves New York and has kind of become yeah. this sort of liberal Upper West Sider, but also has held on to your faith. She's like, that's what makes this interesting. And so she pushed me to put more of my faith in this book, which I probably wouldn't have done otherwise, I think. And so that is how Good Apple came about. And, you know, I did not know how it was going to be received by publishers. I really didn't. This was pre-pandemic. We were still meeting with people in person. My agent and I always laugh. It felt like sorority rush where we got to go around, like, you know, running around to different locations and (laughs) sort of meeting people and having to small talk and giving our pitch and putting on our sparkling. We're both oversharers. We're both very talkative. And so it's like putting on our sparkly presentation. It felt very much like sorority rush in college all over again. But we had the best time. And it just felt like there were just lots of green lights. God made it very clear that you're doing what I want you to be doing. Keep doing it. And that was really nice. That doesn't always happen in life. And that certainly has not happened a lot of times in my career. But in this one, he just kind of kept opening little doors here and there and saying, yep, keep going, keep going. Uh, Keep doing what what I'm telling you to do. And the response was really enthusiastic from publishers, Christian and non-Christian. We got different enthusiastic responses. Christian publishers were excited that I was a little bit of a different kind of voice in the Christian world. Non-Christian publishers were fascinated by me. They were like, so you're this New Yorker who has quite a switched from being this super conservative growing up and now you're a Democrat and this, that, and the other. So I got a little bit of that from both sides. So yeah, that is how the first book came about. And then the second book, really, it was totally different and so much harder. I think in some sense, I I don't love this book more, but I do love it differently because it was more of a struggle. It was a lot more of a struggle to get this book done for the simple fact that I started writing it when we were still in the pandemic. I was writing it in kind of the winter of 2021, spring of 2021, when in New York, especially, we were still hybrid school. My kids were not in school full time. And I also did not have this perfect blueprint of where everything was going. When you sell a nonfiction book proposal, as you know, you outline the whole thing before you even sell it. So you write about four or five chapters, you outline the rest of them, you know where it's going before you really even start writing the book. With the second book, it was just a nice, 
open road with no guideposts and nowhere to go. And so I just started. And um, at the time, I really thought I had sort of lost my sense of humor. Mm. I was not happy. It was a really difficult time in New York. It was a really difficult time in my in my four walls of my apartment with my kids and just the ups and downs and uncertainties of school. Um, it was a really hard time. And so I started writing. And I think that later that summer, I don't know, maybe in the fall, I kind of sent off. I try to get about half a book done before I send it to my agent and my editor and get some feedback from them. And I did that. Maybe it wasn't half, maybe a third. And they both got back to me and said, hmm, uh, you don't sound like yourself. <laughs> you sound a little mean. You sound, I don't know. And they were really loving and kind and gentle about it, but they were right. I was writing just from a tough place. And I think mm. the writing really reflected that. So um, some of those chapters are still in the book. We did not scrap it, but um, it took a little bit longer for, I think, my life to even out a little bit mm. and certain things to even out and for me to have a little perspective. I was writing very in the moment. I was writing very much about what was happening right then. And I needed a little bit of distance to kind of go back. And then, you know, this book, It Was an Ugly Couch Anyway, is really about there the, the thread that goes through this entire book is we sold our two bedroom apartment that we had lived in for about 14 years hmm. and with the hopes that we were going to buy a larger apartment in our same building. We loved our building. We wanted to stay in it. And we were going to buy this three bedroom apartment that had been abandoned. It was a hoarder situation. Hmm. It was a complete disaster, just floor to ceiling junk. The woman um, who owned it, her husband owned it, he had died. She did not live there. She lived elsewhere in the city. And so the, the thread of this book is that we wrote her a letter. We asked if we could buy it. She said yes. And then we entered into about a two-year roller coaster, logistical, emotional roller coaster of trying to actually buy this apartment. And it took a really long time. We kind of befriended this woman. She's still in our lives. Uh, Lois is what I call her in the book. And um, so it's kind of the friendship that forms between us. And that story was beginning to take shape. We knew about the apartment, but we didn't really know where it was going kind of in the spring of 2021. And as I was writing the book, that story also became the main story of our lives was mm. this apartment and trying to get the apartment and being obsessed about getting the apartment and then thinking we were going to lose the apartment and then thinking Lois wasn't going to sell us the apartment and then thinking Lois was going to sell us the apartment, but she can't find her ID and all these different oh things. And so when that started taking shape, that gave the book a lot of structure. Um, but yes, writing the second book was really different. And I don't know what a third book will be at this point. I, I don't know. I feel like you, I just have to take a little time and live a little life and see what happens. Yeah. But um, but that is really what got the second book off the ground. Yeah. Well, I, I love hearing that story and that perspective. Um, and I love especially how you talked about how the publishers like on both sides, both Christian and non-Christian publishers, like didn't know what to do with you with for that for for your first book. But I'm curious, like for for the second one, I know that it's really a collection of essays, but I, I love hearing that thread of of really the almost the metaphor for your life. And your the subtitle is in other thoughts on moving forward. What was your hope, especially when you started writing this book from a place of of pain and kind of a really hard place, which so many people can relate to in the last couple of years. What was your hope in the end in the final, like finished, polished product? What was your hope that 
that readers and that people would take away and, and learn from from both the the hard and the good and the the beautiful and the ugly within the your story? Well, I think the title comes from the first chapter in the book, which is the t- the title essay. It was an ugly couch anyway, which is about this couch that belonged to my dad that had a long history in our family. It had lived in a lot of locations and it ended, it had ended up in New York and we were going to have to get rid of it for reasons I will not get into because it is a very long story. But um, my dad had died in the end of 2019. And so this couch had taken on kind of mythical proportions in my life. I suddenly really didn't want to get rid of it because my dad had died and he loved the couch. It was a piece of him and I had all these emotions tied up in it. And so when I started this book, when I finished Good Apple and was starting this book, it was, I was still, I was grieving my dad. We were in a pandemic. My husband had these very bizarre and really scary sort of series of health problems that also is in the book. And so, you know, when I talk about moving forward, I feel like number one, just like you said, the hard and the 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 good and the, the awful, scary and the beautiful, every story that we go through, if it's a joyful one and it's a happy story, there's always a tinge of sadness somewhere. Um, I wrote an essay once for Southern Living last Christmas, and it it was people responded to it. I feel like more than anything else I've ever written. But it talked I talked about just how I cry every every Christmas morning because mm-hmm. <laughs> something goes wrong, or I'm disappointed, or my kids are disappointed, or something I thought was going to be amazing and magical wasn't. And um, how I love Christmas Eve because you still have the anticipation and everything hasn't gone to gone to crap yet. And I think that's sort of how life is. The really happy moments always have some sort of sadness in them. And the really sad moments, and I've had a lot of them in the past couple of years, always have some humor in them. And that's, that, that's what gets me through is, is a little bit of laughter or a little bit of joy or just that kind of light peeking through in the cracks, as they say. So I, I, I want people to know that it's never all one or the other. Also, I am, I am a very capable person. I am very self-reliant. That's a, that's a big family value with, with my family of origin. Uh, we like self-sufficiency. And I love control. That is definitely an idol of mine. And another thing I think I learned is that you just really don't have it. We don't have it. And we say that all the time. Oh, so many things are out of our control. And we say that. Or God's in control. God is sovereign over our lives. I say that all the time and I do not practice it. Mm. I do not live it out. I I try to white knuckle things. I try to hold on to things. Um, I tried so hard to make this apartment thing happen with the efficiency that I desired. I try so hard to you know, give the answers, the medical answers that I wanted in whatever hospital stay we were in. I, I really feel like if I can just talk to the right person or I can use the right manners or I can um, just, you know, get my sparkling personality in there or whatever it is, I can fix it or I can make something happen that I want to happen. And I think what I would also want people to take away, whether they come from my faith background or not, is that we really and truly do not have control over so many things that we think. And there's a freedom in that. There is a freedom in saying, I can be open-handed about this. This is not ultimately where my happiness lies. This is not ultimately where my identity lies. Um, You know, in Good Apple, I talk a lot about politics. And I say, the reason I can be so free of talking about politics, when I know there are so many people where I grew up who disagree with me, including my own mother, by the way, the reason I can talk about it freely, the reason it does not scare me, doesn't make me, uh, you know, question my my values or anything is because I know where my identity lies. Mm. I know what my foundation is. So when things feel out of control and things feel hard or things feel that nothing felt more out of control than all of our lives in the past two years of that pandemic. So when all of that feels out of control, 
I can be crazy and chaotic and things can be like that because I know where my foundation foundation lies. And so, you know, that is really the lesson that I've learned is I can, I can talk the talk, but I really had to start walking the walk in that sense. So I'm curious how you have, and I know you talk about this some in, in Good Apple, but even more so, I just would love to hear your perspective on how you have maintained such a strong foundation in your faith when that it, the reality is, is, uh, you know, I've been to New York. There's not a whole lot of evangelical Christians in New York. And um, uh, there certainly are for sure. Um, but, you know, what that has been like for you to hold on to your faith in what many would categorize as a city that that isn't and it's not the Bible Belt and it's not all those things. Um, but you've you've stayed so rooted in your in your faith and in your foundation, um, you know, and, and what has that journey been like for you? Well, first of all, anybody who grew up in the evangelical tradition is certainly not going around New York City calling themselves evangelical yeah. Christians. I'll say that right now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah. is a taboo now. That's a no-no. Yeah. So we're not using that word anymore, Molly. Um, listen, whether or not you're going to follow the four tenets of evangelicalism or whatever it is, that's a whole nother theological podcast that I'm not qualified to yeah, say. No, but, um, you, yeah. you know, it's funny. I mean, when I moved to New York in 99, I would say most of the Christians that I knew were probably from the South. They were people that had moved here and had brought their Bible Belt faiths with them. But that is really not the case anymore. I mean, now there are there are there are just a lot. There are a lot of churches in New York City. Mm, there are a lot, and awesome. there are a lot of Christians. And that's I also awesome. think it so often we as kind of the white evangelical church discount the fact that there have been black churches everywhere oh, for yeah. so long that are not considered, you know, people don't think about it when they're thinking about the quote unquote evangelical, you know, Christianity. And they have been here in New York City uh, for, forever. You know, forever. And so I think that, yes, I think for, for some, in some ways, it's a misconception that there aren't a lot of Christians in New York. I think there's more than there have been. And there are a lot of thriving churches here. Yeah. But also, you know, talking about the Bible Belt, having grown up there, I mean, it is for me anyway, this might not be the case for everyone. It is for me an easier place to sort of really drill down and know what my faith means to me Mm. because I don't have to. I don't have to. Mm. I could very easily just slip right out of that skin and be whoever else I wanted to be. And uh, I would have lots of friends and a great community and family that accepted me and would not challenge that at all. If I said, yep, I'm giving that up. I'm, I'm, I'm done with Jesus. There would be a whole city waiting for me with open arms. So if you don't want mm-hmm. to be that, if that is not true to you, if you are not willing to, to fight for it and to really, really believe it, you don't have to. The reason I it stays with me is because it's true yeah. and I believe it and because God has held on to me. Mm. I'm not I'm not always fighting to hold on to God here. He's fighting to hold on to me. He's fighting to hold on to all of us. You know, we didn't yeah. have to go up to heaven to get him. He came down here yeah. and he came into into cities like New York and he, you know, sludged through the dirty streets with bare feet and he came down here for us. So I think Number one, again, it's just it's just Jesus's love and mercy for me that he's held on to me. So it's not necessarily my doing. At the same time, I find New York a really beautiful place to practice my faith. I also think as we, you know, as the church kind of wrestles with a lot of current cultural issues and we talk about, uh, you know, the poor and homeless problems and racial reconciliation and all these things that the church is struggling with and not doing great in a lot of ways, uh, you can't live in New York City and walk outside your door 
and not be smacked in the face with all of those problems the minute you walk outside mm-hmm. your front door, sometimes in your own building, in your own elevator. So um, we, it, it's harder to ignore. I'm not saying that we go out just with glad hands and we're just picking homeless people up off the street and yeah. bringing them to church. I mean, you know, we're not doing it great either all the time, but you at least cannot, there is no bubble that you can get in, right. in New York City to hide from it. So I think in that way, it's constantly challenging me. It's constantly um, convicting me of my own pride and mm. my own selfishness. Yeah. So I, I actually think it's a pretty amazing city to be a Christian. Yeah. Um, and we have a great church community. We just, you know, we just, we just do. We have a wonderful church community that we've been a part of for years and years. At this point, we've got kids joining the church who were born in New York City or native New Yorkers who are growing up in the church and joining the church. And um, it looks different. It certainly looks different from the way I grew up. No question about it. Does my church life and my faith look different here than it would probably in Memphis? But, but it's good. It's yeah. good. I well, I really appreciate that. And I love hearing that so much. Um, because I love when we're able to break down misconceptions and 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 stereotypes or myths or things like that to help be like, no, this is actually, you know, what it looks like day to day. And this is this isn't the reality that I see. I want to ask you about raising kids in the city because I think I, one, I have a, like I said, my cousin lives in Manhattan, um, or actually she lived in Manhattan. Once they had their twins, uh, they did move to Pelham. So there she takes the train into the city every day. But, um, but she did, I mean, uh, and you know, initially they were living in the city, uh, when they, when they had their first, uh, their first kid. And I have another friend who lives in Brooklyn with young kids and I'm always, just so fascinated by it. And, you know, I would just love for you to share your perspective on raising littles in the city and and now teens in the city and what that has been like for them. And I can't, I mean, what an amazing childhood uh, to just be able to, you know, go, I mean, I don't know if you guys like go see Broadway shows just like for fun on a Friday night or like, you know, or go to museums. I don't know. We absolutely do not do that. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm like, Oh, you know how it is. Just, yeah. We just head on to Times Square, just go to Broadway shows. Nope, we don't do that. We don't do that. Yeah. In fact, I laugh because I took my kids to the Empire State Building. We had some friends in town because that's when you do it. You do it when your friends are in town and they're yeah. visiting. You're like, they're like, we'd like to go to the Empire State Building. My kids look at me and they're like, we've never been to the Empire State Building. I'm like, great, let's all go. So sometimes we haven't even done the very basics of tourism in New York City Love as it. a family. Um, well, I have to say, for starters, I don't know anything different. Yeah. You know, I, I moved here at 22 and I've been here ever since. And I had my kids and I'm raising my kids in New York and I've never raised children, had babies anywhere else. So I don't have anything to compare it to other than my own childhood, but I, I don't, I can't compare raising kids here to raising kids elsewhere, having not done it. Um, but you know, there are, there are certainly sacrifices that you make space is is obviously the 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 biggest one uh we live in small spaces and children share rooms nobody necessarily gets their own room my 13 year old currently has her own room but that's just a recent development and um there is not a place where i can open a door and shove them outside and say goodbye and don't leave the fence or don't leave the fenced in area or walk to the neighbors or whatever it is there is none of that when they are little and they want to go out I have to go with them. I have to walk them to the playground. I have to walk them to the park. So there are things like that that are harder. You walk everywhere. We do have a car. We have a minivan, just like every other mom in America. Love I drive it. a Honda Odyssey, you guys. I have a minivan. 
but, uh, and we, and we park it on the street and we do use it. I mean, we go places, we go to soccer tournaments just like everyone else. And, but for the most part, your life is on foot. You are pushing a stroller, your kids are on scooters, you're hauling your bag, your bags from the grocery home on your shoulders. So there is a lot more, I think, physical exertion with children. Um, however, the upside to that is when you're walking out on the street you know, I'm not distracted by driving. We're seeing other people. So we're having conversations about either strange things we're seeing on the street or wonderful things we're seeing on the street. We're looking at nature in the park. We're talking about why that guy is yelling at that guy on the corner <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. We have really interesting conversations, you guys, walking around on the street. So I think the walking, the just sort of uh, pedestrian lifestyle can lead to a lot of wonderful conversations with your kids, as opposed to being in a car and being isolated from other people. Um, so there's good and bad to that. There's good and bad to the small space. I we don't have a ton of stuff. My my kids' toys. We kind of they come in, they go out. We don't keep a lot of stuff. We get rid of clothes really easily. It is, you know, I think possessions wise, um, we have a really good perspective, at least in our family about possessions, because we just don't have room for a lot of things. Yeah. So that's great. That's the upside to living in a small space. It's easier to clean. There are so many wonderful things about living in a small space. And also when my husband and I are having an argument, my children can hear it. When my kids, uh, you know, they don't disappear to another wing of the house when they're with their friends, their friends are kind of all in our faces. So there's, there's, there's good and bad to yeah. all of these things. But um, I just love I love raising my kids in an environment where they are just in no way in a homogenous yeah. sort of community. Yeah. It's just not possible. And listen, we live on the Upper West Side. We live in a pretty homogenous neighborhood to some extent. My kids go to public school. Their public schools are majority white. We do not, you know, so again, I just want to reiterate, we are not doing everything perfectly. It's, and, and however, they don't live in any sort of bubble where everyone comes from the same background, um, looks the same, speaks the same language, has the same economic level that they do, they, they do. Um, they just are constantly surrounded by people who are very different. And part of that is just life stage. Yeah. I love that we live in a building where they are going to have to navigate the elevator with um, their elderly neighbors who use walkers and wheelchairs. And so, okay, we're going to hold the door open because Mrs. So-and-so needs to be able to get out with her walker and it takes a long time. Oh my gosh, it takes so long. Yes, we are trying to be patient because it takes Mrs. So-and-so forever to get out the elevator, but we're going to stand here and hold the door for her. Um, those yeah. kinds of things, those kinds of life lessons. So I just love that they're being raised like that. Um, I don't really know how my kids feel about it because again, they've never known anything yeah, they different. They spend a lot of time in the South. My sister lives in South Carolina. My mom is still in Memphis. We spend a lot of time down there. And they do occasionally say things like, oh, I wish we had a backyard. And then we get to Memphis and they won't go outside because the mosquitoes are bad. So, you know, kids, <laughs> kids can't be relied upon. Kids, ki kids are unreliable. Yes. You cannot base your life about what your kids want. Yep. That's my feeling. Oh, yeah. Um, they, they are very, very just finicky about yeah. what they would like in their lives. So I guess we'll look back in a few years and ask them how their childhood in New York City was. But um, they don't know anything different. They think it's great because this is all they know. Oh, I think that's so fun. And I, I like I said, I love New York. And uh, as somebody who at one t point in my life really wanted to move there and live there, I just think that's so cool. And I, I think about, you know, what that would be like. And and I love the 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 different cultures and the different things. And yeah, who, what's that guy yelling about? Um, yeah, I just... they definitely don't think it's cool. I will say that <laughs> much. They definitely do not think it's cool. When we say things like, 
what a gift it is that you do get to go to a Broadway show because yes, they do. They go to more Broadway shows than probably the average American for sure. And they just kind of roll their eyes at me. You know, one other thing I want to say, and I wrote a chapter about this in, um, in, it, it was an ugly couch anyway, is in New York, I talk to my friends who are, you know, living in suburban areas and, you know, in driving. And when their kids reach 16 and they start driving, it's just life changing because now that child can take himself to school. He can drive his siblings to swim practice or whatever it is. Well, in New York, we don't, kids are not really getting their license at 16. Some do, but it's not, you know, it's not a thing. And, but in middle school, they really start moving around the city for the most part in their neighborhood on buses. Uh, my daughter is in seventh grade now. She, this, just this year, she started taking the subway to soccer practice. But but really in middle school, they start taking the bus places. They start walking places on their own. They are very independent and it's life-changing. And so if you can make it through the little toddler years, which is really physically exhausting because you're kind of hauling things and pushing strollers, you get to that freedom in terms of your kids being independent and being able to go places and take themselves to their own orthodontist appointments, stuff like that. She can get to youth group on her own. You get to that stage earlier. And I remember being a young mom with new kids and having an older mom say to me, if you can make it through those really young years, it gets so much better and so delightful when they are old enough to go places on their own. And in New York, that happens earlier. And it is a true life-changing, like it, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. My, my 13-year-old can pick up her baby brother at, a, at a, base, a birthday party and bring him home. She can drop him off at a friend's house. She can take him places and nobody has to get in the car to do it. And so that is really great. That's a great thing about New York. That is such a fun perspective that I would have never considered. My kids are just now at the point where like my my daughter is definitely like she's nine. She's almost 10, but she's going on like 97. Like she's just very mature, very much a firstborn rule follower to a T in that like you give her an assignment and homegirl's going to do every last bit like to the letter of the law. (laughs) She's very so weird. That's so unlike the oldest daughter. So strange. I know. So strange. Just very, very trustworthy. Um, And so we've just now, very recently, for occasional periods, left her home alone, like with her brother for like, if I need to run to the store, you guys are going to stay here. I mean, again, we live on a farm. You can't see our house from the road. We have a landline. Okay. This is who we are. So do we. I know. Landline is is key. Uh, but you know, and I just remember the first time I like went to the store by myself and it was so funny. Or yeah, without them. And they they stayed here. And I, you know, before I was like, okay, I'm gonna be on 30 minutes. Here's what you're gonna do. Here are your rules. And it was like every 15 minutes my daughter was calling and she was like, Okay, I have Amos has taken his shower. What do we do now? And I'm just just like, you guys can just play. You can hang out. Like you can. And I remember I said, you can listen to music, whatever music you want within reason, as loud as you want, as loud as you want. You can listen. You could blast music throughout the house. And she was like, I can. And she just thought that was the coolest thing ever that she could listen to whatever music. But yeah, so I, I, I'm getting glimpses of those the relationship and how it shifts a little bit as you begin to let the leash out a little bit on your kids and, and just it. But when you think about it in different environments, like how cool is it to, to see like, oh, here's this tiny human that I have, have stewarded and they are making decisions on their own. <laughs> they're they're yes. doing things. And you know, yet again, like we were talking about control. I mean, 
what it, it is so good for these kids too. I mean, I think people sometimes look at me like, you let her ride the subway. Yes. First of all, New York City, if anybody is listening who is also listening to media outlets that are telling them New York City is a wash in crime, it's fine. Everything's great up here, you guys. I let my seventh grader ride the subway with a friend to soccer practice and everyone's fine. Everyone's but, fine. But, um, you know, I do think every, everyone's great. But I also think it's so good for her. The, yes. the, the confidence and just the excitement and confidence that she has and, and self-confidence for a girl, for a 13-year-old. Yes. I mean, give them all we can give them. Yes. So to give her that kind of self-confidence and say, we trust you. You can do this. You are fine. And she believes that and she loves it. And it's so great for her. And it's, yeah, she's made a couple of bad decisions here and there about, we told you to go here. You didn't go there. You disobeyed us and we can track your Apple watch. So we know where you are. Yeah. I mean, these are all life lessons. We all had those life lessons when we were that yep. age and we were kind of, you know, supposed to be at so-and-so's house and we were at so-and-so's house. So I think it's so good for them. It's so good for them. And also, as I was talking about before, about control issues, listen, you can try to hold on and try to protect them and try to hold everything and, and orchestrate every little step that they take throughout this big, bad world. And you can't do it. Yeah. At some point, you have to let go and let God. And yeah. Those, those preteens are, are going to do what they're going to do in some sense. And you hope that the lessons you've taught them and the things that you've told them, they are going to take them with them. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't because they're dumb because they're kids. <laughs> but you just cannot control every single aspect yeah. of, of these kids' lives. So Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Elizabeth, this is so fun. I just love you. And I love um, your, your heart and your humor and your perspective on things, your wisdom. Um, I'm so excited about uh, your book and uh, just what else is brewing there within you. I know your mom says that you're done, but I don't know if you're done. So she I'm says I'm done. So yep. yep. <laughs> and if mom says it, fortunately, you guys, Fortunately, I do not take I do not take career advice from my mom, so it's okay. It's I, I don't think I'm done. She oh. might just need a little break. She might need a little bit of a break um, from listening to me talk about myself and her and our family in public for a little while, and then she it. might come back around. I love it so much. It's just like, oh yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Mm -hmm. I I totally got it. All right. Well, Elizabeth, uh, what are you, what's on the horizon? How can people keep in touch with you? How can people follow your work and all of that? Sure. Well, I am most active on Instagram. I am E.S. Passarella on Instagram. And I do post, um, there haven't been a ton of updates lately, but I do post a lot of information about the apartment. If you want to see what the hoarder apartment looked like, I have lots of pictures. If you want to see the progress that we're making, we're renovating it right now. Um, it is like a very dramatic transformation. So that is really fun if you want to follow along with that. Um, and then, yeah, you can find out about my books and everything on my website, which is just elizabethpassarella.com. Love it. Thank you so much for being here. It was so awesome to meet you. You're amazing. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. I told you that you just feel like Elizabeth is an old friend. She's just that kind of uh, soul who really you just immediately click with, connect with. She's so great. I hope you loved this conversation. I would love to know what you loved or what you learned. Let us know on social media. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Can I Laugh Pod wherever you get your socials. And would you take a moment and head on over to whatever podcast app you're listening to and leave a review? Leaving a review lets me know what you're liking, how the show is impacting you and all of that. And don't forget to click that subscribe or follow button. 
Thank you as always for listening. Thank you to the team at Third Wheel Media for producing the show. And for you, I hope something this week makes you laugh till you cry. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.